Well, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you sitting here today watching at home would say, which is always interesting, there's more watching at home than are here, would say that you have trust issues. How many of you would be willing to admit that you have trust issues? Now, to some extent, uh, we all probably do, we have all had at some point in time, and if you haven't yet, you will, somebody violate our trust, which is actually very interesting when you think about it, because Jesus and the apostles taught that the way to get to heaven is to repent and believe. What does it mean, repent and believe? What does that mean? Repent means to turn to God, and believe means to put your trust in Jesus Christ. So it's hard to trust if you have trust issues. And I think a lot of us would say that for our Christian lives, if you're here, you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We all started that way. And but we would say that perhaps trusting God is one of the most difficult things to do at times in the Christian life. Last week, we talked about that God is good all the time, yet sometimes it seems everything is against you. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like everything is against you? And then sometimes you may be, well, you're very spiritual people. I know you come to church on Sunday during virus season. But, but, but if you're anything like me, sometimes I say to God, you know, God, I feel like everything and everyone is against me. And I hate to say it, but that includes you. <laughs> I just feel like nothing is going right. Now, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus... Or if you're new to following Jesus, let me just tell you something that's really odd. Don't ask me how it works. I have no idea. It's just miraculous. But I've noticed that all my years being a follower of Jesus, the more you trust the Lord, the more you experience His goodness, despite the circumstances despite the fact that your faith seems to be constantly being challenged by the events of your life, the more you trust him, the more you seem to experience his goodness. In the New Testament, after Jesus ascended into heaven, there's a letter, a book called Hebrews. And Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter we call the Hall of Faith. And what's interesting about the Hall of Faith is it's full of people, you know, really Old Testament people, who uh, trusted God for promises they could not see. And for most of them, promises they never saw. But they trusted God. It says of Abraham that he looked forward to a city whose builder and maker was God, the man we're reading about here in Genesis chapter 15. And so the title of our message is, How Do You Know You Can Trust God? How, I mean, how do you know? That's a logical, logical question if you have trust issues. How can we have reassurance from God? How can we have our doubts about God removed? 
you know, how do we know that we can trust God's promises? It's very interesting. Theologians often uh, refer to the reason we can trust His promises, and they use the word covenant. Covenant. God makes a covenant with us, and that's why we can trust His promises. Some of you say, well, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Bible scholar. Well, in His grace, what God often does in the Scriptures is He gives us pictures So you're going to all have to use your imaginations today. He gives us pictures of how he can be trusted. And in 4,000 years ago, here in Genesis 15, 2,000 years before Jesus came along, the Lord gives us a great picture. Well, last week in verses 1 through 6, the Lord assured Abraham, although he was very old and his wife was well past childbearing years, that they would have the son of the promise. They would have many descendants and that they would have a son. And this week, the promise moves from the son to the land. He had promised that he was going to have a great land. And so he says to uh, Abram in verse 7, Then he said to him, this would be the Lord speaking to Abraham, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am your protector. I am your provider. Who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans? Remember, Abraham was a pagan. That's where he used to live. Abram, Abraham, same guy. To give you this land to inherit, to possess it. So he's in the promised land. He's in Canaan right now. And he says, I I brought you out of there to this land to inherit it. So if you're going to inherit something, what does that usually mean? You don't have it yet. So he doesn't have it yet. We know he doesn't have it yet. Verse 8, and he, Abraham, said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he wants reassurance. Now, notice what happens right out of the box here. I love this about God most of the time. (laughs) The Lord comes to him. He comes to him. You know, that's, that's what... God does. He comes to you. Maybe you're exploring faith and you're thinking, well, no, I came to church. I came to God today. Okay, fine. You'll, you'll, you'll eventually realize that it was God that came to you. And I think of, I think of a, an, an, an arrogant, very, very arrogant, uh, with a, with a growing, fast-growing business, you know, pot-smoking, beer-drinking jerk, 28 years old, God came to him. Jesus came to him. If you don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about me. Just, God just showed up, and I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? It took me a little while to recognize him, but he just, he just shows up. That's what he does, and he reminds Abraham, and, and God shows up constantly in my life, generally when I'm reading the Bible, and and he reminds him in verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I am the one who brought you out of where you used to be. If you're a follower of Jesus and your story is one of, of not such a pretty past like mine, sometimes God needs to say to you, and he says it to me, something like this, hey boy, remember who brought you here. 
And so he says, I'm the one who brought you here. Look at the land around you. I know you don't have it yet, but look around you. I brought you here. It's like the Lord says to him, I created you. I have been protecting you. I have been providing for you. I have been overseeing your destiny. I am your Savior. Now, is, is, is the timing of the promise what Abraham wants? He wants a son. Now he's too old, and his wife is too old to have kids. Is that good timing? No, no. You may, we say this all the time around here. If you're new, this is the kind of, we try to be really honest around here. If you say to Christian people, is God's timing perfect? They go, oh, yes, Pastor Jim, of course, it's always on time. And inside, I look at your eyes, and inside you're like, he's always late. Somebody needs to buy him a calendar and a watch or something, man, because he always seems to be late as far as I'm concerned. That's the way Abraham is probably feeling about this time. It wasn't what he wanted. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have the land yet. Although, like most of us probably should do, Abraham probably has to say, you know something, i got to admit this, God, you have taken care of me. I mean, I'm still alive. You, you have gotten me through to this point. And I think, I think our failure to admit God's care and how he is taking care of us really explains a lot of our faith waffling, explains why a lot of people walk away from God because he just didn't do things fast enough. Do you ever have a friend you invite to church and they come one time and you're like, it didn't work for me? That's like, like somebody who's terribly out of shape. They go to the gym one time. They wake up the next day, they're sore, and they're like, oh, forget this. Didn't work for me. <laughs> like, like, what were they expecting? They die at one day. And they're like, I'm heavier than the day before. I don't get it. You know, we, we just, you know, we, we are impatient people. In the same way, God said last week, I will give you a son. This week, he says, listen, I want to remind you of something. My plan is still to give you the land. I want to reassure you in that. This is important for all of us to remember. What the Lord has done for us in the past, very helpful for us to remember before we move on or before we move forward in faith. Because if you always forget what he's done, if you have an attitude towards God of like, what have you done for me lately, you will not move on in faith. I don't care how much verbiage you give to it. I speak from experience. You'll move on in the flesh. What do I mean by that? You will not be guided by faith. You will be guided by your emotions, your fears, your desires. Those will be the things that will make the decisions for you. And then sure enough, when it goes south, you'll be like, God, how did I get here? <laughs> you should remember that when we remember the faithfulness of God, as we move forward into the unknown, that will give us boldness, not obnoxiousness. That will give us boldness. When we remember what God has done for us in the past, and we move forward in boldness, we also move forward in the power of God's Spirit for service. 
Last week we read in verse 6 that Abraham believed God. Now, we, might, we don't know how much time comes in between, but some might say that verse 8 is unbelief and doubt. Others would simply say this, I think this is just the request of faith. He said, God, I just need more reassurance. Let's be honest again. <laughs> if you're new, you're going to find this amazingly comforting. Because if you've been hanging out with a bunch of spiritual people, they, they want to make it seem to you that faith is neat and clean. Faith is not neat and clean. Faith is messy. And if you're looking around this room and go, well, their faith is neat and clean. I know most of them. And their faith is not neat and clean. It's just like mine. It can be very, very messy at times. It's not always easy. It's not always effortless. And to be honest, we need reassurance from the Lord. We need reassurance from the Lord. Now, I'm just going to pick on the husbands for a second. Easy targets, especially because I am one. You husbands, you know this. Your wife knows that you love her. If she doesn't, come see me. (laughs) Your wife knows that you love her, yet what does she say to you? Please tell me you love me. (laughs) She wants reassurance. Reassurance. Now, my beloved wife, I won't tell you where she's sitting. (laughs) She's the pretty one laughing with her head down right now. Whenever she does something and she thinks I'm not particularly happy about it, she'll say this to me, but you know you love me. (laughs) And I'll be like, you're darn right I do. See, Abraham just needs reassurance. He wants to know more about God's plan. He wants to have greater understanding. And so basically, he asks for a sign. Remember, we said he doesn't have much of a Bible to go on. He's only on page 11. (laughs) We've got the whole book. And you might say, I I, I want that too. And, And I don't always get it when I read the Bible. I would say this. Look for in your life what we sometimes refer to around here as grace markers. Just look for a little activity in your life that God is just showing you, like, hey, I'm here. It's simple things. It's really simple things. You know, it's, it's you're, you're, you're not too happy about something, and then you get a text from someone, or you, silly things, you, you know, you you're in the drive-thru at the bank, and there's a long line, and they open up a, a green light. Nobody goes, and you zip in front of everybody else, and you go in, or you get a parking spot or something like that. Just look for little things to remind you that, that God is there. Verse 9, so he, the Lord, said to him, let's stop right there. Well, what would you expect God to say? 
I mean, he's taken him. He's taken this guy all over the place. He's made him a very, he's a very wealthy man. Remember that he he covered his sin in Egypt. He then went to war against all the kings. Uh, you know, Ketalomer and the four, and the other three kings are outnumbered like crazy. He beats them in the war. Frees his nephew Lot. I mean, God has done so much for this guy. Okay, he doesn't have a son yet, and he doesn't have the land yet, but he's done so much for this guy. What would you expect God to say? Would you expect him to say, man, you just have to have faith? That's what we say to people sometimes, don't we? You just have to have faith. We wonder why our people, our family members are like, I don't want to sit next to that guy at Thanksgiving dinner ever again. Or, or would you expect God to say something like, yo, Abe, man, you got to get it together. you got to get it together, man. It's very interesting in the Bible, there's a lot of different examples. I'll just give you three. Uh, Gideon, Hezekiah, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all. They're confused, and they're doubting God, and they ask the Lord for confirmation. They ask God for grace markers, and God graciously gives it to them. Graciously gives it to them. So let's pick up verse 9 again. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer. That's a cow, if you don't know a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him. So Abraham brought them all to God. And interesting, there's no instructions. It seems like Abraham knows what to do. And he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in two. So get the picture right here. He takes the animals, the big ones, he cuts them in two, and he puts half on one side and half on the other side, and half on one side and half on the other side, and half on one side and half on the other side. We did that one time in youth group. We had cut out animals, and so we had all the kids place them across, and then we all walk through together. We're not going to do that today. We're going to use real animals. John, would you bring them forward, please? (laughs) He won't come. Okay, Pastor John, would you please bring them through? Okay. So so he cuts them and and he puts them opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in two. By the way, this is my excuse. Men, you can use this one too. That is why in 30 Thanksgivings with my beloved wife, I have never cut the Thanksgiving turkey. That's why I use that. Now, that's not really the truth. That's not why I don't. It's because I've been banished from the kitchen. And I don't just mean on Thanksgiving. (laughs) Now, why would Pam banish me from the kitchen? Well, verse 11 explains it. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. (laughs) My wife calls me the picker. (laughs) When I was growing up, my mom would go, hey, you want to taste some of this, what I'm making? I would go in and pick and pick, pick, pick. And and my my wife's like, you ain't married to your mother. (laughs) So what's with the deal with the vulture? Some, Some Bible scholars think that the vulture symbolized the opposition and that we have to be active in 
driving the opposition to God out of our own hearts. Now, is that true here? I don't know. But I do know it is true <laughs> that we have to work hard to drive the opposition to God out of our hearts. So what's going on here? You go, this is so confusing. God is making a covenant with Abraham, and he's giving, an, he's giving Abraham a visual of his promise. This is important, loved ones. God does not dismiss your struggles. He does not miss, dismiss your doubts. He doesn't give you a refrigerator magnet. Not that there's anything wrong with refrigerator magnets. What does he do? He gives you himself. And what more could you ever do than to give someone yourself? That's one of the things that makes the marriage ceremony so sacred. Because one person is saying to the other, I give myself to you. Now, this is what is known as cutting a covenant, where two parties enter into a binding agreement. The animals are cut in half, placed on opposite sides of one another, and then the two parties walk in between the animals. So what is this? It is a walk-through visual that says, each party saying to the other, if I fail to keep my promise to you, may this happen to me. May I be cut in two. May I die for not keeping my word. In other words, they would act out the consequences. They would be of, of being torn to pieces for not keeping the covenant. Now, the best explanation of this comes probably some 1,400, 1,300, 1,400 years later in the Old Testament when Babylon was on the move against Jerusalem. And King Zedekiah, everybody go, King Zedekiah, and a bunch of slave owners, many of whom were leaders, cut a covenant with their slaves and said, we're going to set you free. I guess that's not very noble. <laughs> Your city's about to be leveled, and you're like, well, I guess I'll let you guys go free. Maybe you can go do something else. But what happened? Babylon stopped marching. The Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem was in phases. So they stopped marching, and then these people went back on their covenant. Zedekiah, the leaders, the slave owners, they went back on it. And Jeremiah 34, 18 through 19, I'm going to read from the English Standard Version because it makes it a lot easier to understand this, says this, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, this is God speaking, I will make them like the calf that they cut into and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the hearts of the calf. So he's saying these guys that broke the covenant and took the slaves back, they are going to meet their death because they broke the covenant. Now let's go to verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror... Some versions say terror, 
and great, other versions say dreadful, darkness fell upon him. What is this? This is what's about to take place is what we call a theophany. It is a, it is a visible appearance of the living God. And so this is fear in the presence of a holy God. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for watching. Please, it's important that we understand what this is. It is the holiness of God, the holy perfection of God is what reveals us as sinners. The scripture says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would be all. Because the comparison is not to one another. The comparison is to the glory of God. Therefore, take the worst criminal you can think of and know that when it comes to glory, we, I, am closer to him than I am to the glory of God. So it is the holiness of God that reveals us as sinners, not, catch this, loved ones, not what overly religious people say. In our studies in James, we said religion is a word that is not really spoken of very well in the Bible. It is the outward appearances of being godly. Oh, I'm so godly, just ask me. But inward, the heart is blah. So being a sinner is related to the holiness of God, not to what self-righteous religious people tell you. Hebrews 10.31 says this, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Fearful thing. Another version says it is a terrifying thing. It is a dreadful thing. So here you have Abraham, the father of all who would believe. God, this, is, this is God's man for the time, for the ages. And he's in the presence of God, and he is terrified. I hear people say, I'm not afraid of God. Well, you should be. You should be. Now, I talked years ago when God came to an arrogant 28-year-old who happened to share the same name, address, and social security number as me. He stomped on me like the cockroach that I was. And that was in 1988. And look at me. I still remember that moment. I still remember that. I will never forget that. And I hope I feel this way about it till the day I die. And I can tell you this. I'm afraid of him. I love him. I feel loved by him, but I am afraid of him. And anybody who says they're not is a fool, is a complete fool. Why would, why would, why would the writer to the Hebrews say this? Because he says the reason you, should, you and I should be afraid of God is because we insult the cross of Christ. 
when we are dismissive of it. And he says, and we insult the spirit of grace. God offers his grace to us, and we thumb our nose at it. And that's why we should be afraid. Verse 13, then he, God said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers, some versions say foreigners, others say sojourners, in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Another version says they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. This is Joseph and, and Jacob and eventually Moses. This is 400 years of God's people going down to Egypt. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. That's the Passover. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. That's with Moses. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, counting here a generation as 100 years, they shall return here for the iniquity or the sin of the Amorites, part of the Canaanites, is not yet complete. So he says, this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to go down, Abraham. Eventually, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt for 400 years because I'm going to give the Amorites, the Canaanites, some of the most wicked people this planet has ever seen sacrifice live babies as a religious rite. I'm going to give them 400 years to change their mind about me. I'm going to give them 400 years to repent. So Abraham hears something that, that he may not want to hear and you and I may not want to hear. We talked about it in Hebrews 11. What's that? That God's plans can take a long time can take a really long time. And because I'm not mean, I don't want to be mean, this is just an observation. And because so many Christians are driven by their own feelings and their own opinions and not by the word of God, waiting on God eats them alive. Eats them for lunch. So God tells Abraham the honest truth. It's going to be a few generations, your grandkids, great-grandkids, and then it's going to be another 400 years or more. comes out to about 430 until your descendants get the promised land. Even then, some of the people that we'll get to at the end of this chapter, it will take over a thousand years until King David gets them out of the land. Now, here's what we have to remember. We, we think that, you know, people in the Bible are like, oh, great, God, no problemo. 400 years, hey, piece of cake, nothing. It's very clear, it's particularly clear in the New Testament with the apostles who traveled with Jesus and other people who traveled with Jesus, that the people thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They thought immediately. 
And this has been the case of the church throughout history. You know what we learn from history? That we don't learn from history. And throughout history, prophecy buffs and now prosperity preachers make money off Christians who hate to wait. They'll promise you that you can be rich tomorrow. Just do this. Coincidentally, it has to do with giving them money. Wow, what a surprise. How convenient. But they know that you hate to wait, so this is how you can, you know, pre-inherit some of heaven. They, they also know that, that, that <laughs> this, is a, this is such an American thing. People in the rest of the world is like, what's up with you people? Uh, in the United States, every event that happens is the end times. You know, new president comes along. Every time a new president comes along, everybody wants to play pin the tail on the Antichrist. And they're like, well, this has got to be, this has got to be it. This has got to be the end. And the same guys have been peddling these things for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and they're always wrong. At least you give them that. They're consistently wrong. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. When you read the scriptures and you, and you look at Christians throughout history, instead of thinking when world events turn bad, instead of just immediately going to, well, it's the end times, and it is actually the end times. The end times is between the t- Jesus' first coming and second coming. But saying that it's all over, that God's coming back today, you know what they did? They rushed in to help where they could. I'm not saying we don't look forward to the blessed appearing of our Lord. I'm not saying we don't look forward to the fact that today could be the day any one of us or all of us could meet God. But suppose he doesn't show up in our lifetime. Plenty of Christians have gone before us, so shouldn't we live as if he could come today or as if we're going to live to a ripe old age? See, I can't say I agree with God on this, but I can't say he asked me either. God God does not operate on my timetable. God does not operate on your timetable. God does not operate on anyone's timetable, nor is God in a hurry like we are. I mean, do you see what he's saying to Abraham right now? You see what he's saying? He's saying to him, Abraham, you remember that I promised you the land? There's one little catch to it. You will not see the fulfillment of that promise for the land in your lifetime. You're not going to see it. That's what he just told him. Now, do you think that maybe Abraham might say, I'm out of here? That's what a lot of people would do, wouldn't they? He says to him, your descendants are going to end up in Egypt. Will I give these wicked people who are you are surrounded by right now, I give them, their kids, their grandkids, I give them over 400 years to repent. Now, 
A lot of people will tell you they object to the fact that Joshua comes in, in the book of Joshua, comes into Canaan, and he just starts wiping people out. But, but there's a couple things with that. That shows us that giving all that time to wait, that shows us that, that Joshua's invasion was God's justice, not God just having a bad day. Now, sometimes I talk to people and they go, you know, I got a big problem with God wiping out all those people in the Old Testament. And I go, we got something in common. I do too. What's your problem? And they go, well, that he did it. I go, oh, that's not my problem. Hey, what's your problem? I go, that he waited 400 years to do it. <laughs> like, how could anybody be that patient? I would only, only have to hear a couple stories about that stuff. And, you know, let's, let's go. Shock and awe. Once again, the Lord is honest with Abraham. While my people wait in Egypt, it is going to be a long and difficult time for them. It's going to involve a lot of suffering for them. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they had started a bunch of churches. They were working their way out, started churches, and on the way back, they wanted to see how they were doing. This is what they were doing, Acts 14, 22. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, the disciples mainly a learner and follower of Jesus, exhorting or encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations, some versions say trials, some, people, some say troubles, some say hardships, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, most of us hear that verse, or we read that verse, just leave it up there for a second, and we only catch the end. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. But look what it says at the beginning. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, and they were exhorting or encouraging them. Isn't it an amazing thing that God says, knowing this truth, and still trusting me, I promise you, I will strengthen you. I promise you, I will encourage you. But what do we have to do? What's our part? We have to fight off the vultures. We have to fight off the vultures. Which, which would include the guys on television a lot of guys out there telling you, oh, well, just do what I say and everything will be fine. That is not true. Does that look like everything's going to go great? No. But this shows us the honesty and integrity and the trustworthiness of God. As he says to all of us, he says to Abraham, he says to us, he says, I will preserve you through your sufferings. It's also like God saying to us, I will be honest with you all of the time. I'm not going to lie to you. I know, it's like God saying to all of us, I know my promises seem hindered by time. I know my promises seem hindered by suffering, but they are not. They are not. 
It's like the Lord is saying, I am not some phony preacher that makes phony promises to you, and that's why you can trust me. Because I'm going to tell you the truth every time, whether you like it or not. Verse 17, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven, some versions say a fire pot, and a burning or flaming torch that passed between those pieces. Now, most likely, this is a preview. It's not going to take place for till after that 400-year period with Moses when the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire is with the people out in the wilderness in the book of Exodus. So, all of a sudden, Abram's asleep, right? He's passive in all this. He sees this, 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 this fire pop, this smoke, this flaming torch go through the pieces. He's not going through. It, it, it's only the, the smoke, the cloud, if you will, and it's the torch, Verse 18, on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We'll say that the, what happened, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I, will, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and to stop you people from coming up after me after the service, and the termites. So we can't miss what happens here. 2,000 years before Jesus Christ, God himself walks in between these cut animals without Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make this covenant without you. I will make it without you. I will be faithful to you, Abraham, even to death, if that's what it takes to keep my promise to you. Now, some people say, well, that's impossible. How could God stop being God? Well, you know, how could God stop keeping, not keeping, how could he not keep his promise? So how do you know you can trust God? God says, I'm willing to give it all up, all of it up, if I don't keep my promise to you. God says, I'm willing to suffer for covenant failure. I'm even willing to die for covenant failure. But this is what happens, loved one, and this is the picture that we all need to see. God is saying to Abram at that point in time, I am going to take the responsibility for both of us. I'm going to take it for myself, Abram, but since you didn't walk through, since you were sleeping on the job, I'm going to take the responsibility for you too. What does that tell you? That tells you and I that the eternal God would rather be torn apart than lose his people. That's what he's saying, Abraham. I would rather I be torn apart than lose you. That's why Abraham trusted God. 
He saw that God's commitment to him was of grace and of God's goodness, not because Abraham was a good person. Remember his failure in Egypt? You say, I don't. We'll come back next week. It won't be long for the next one. (laughs) If you're not a follower of Jesus, then you are in God's eyes like the Amorites, the Canaanites. Your time is not yet complete, yet the Scripture says, now is the day of salvation. Today is your day. Today is your day. Again, next week, he'll fail to keep the covenant. You and I fail to keep it. And yet God was the only one to walk through between the animals. What does that really mean? Well, to answer that question, we have to take a 2,000-year journey forward to the foot of the cross. Where? God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, having been whipped savagely to the point in time where they said you couldn't even recognize him, being nailed to a cross, what's happening? Jesus is being torn to pieces. That's what's happening. And then soon, darkness comes over the land, just like it did for Abraham. But the fire of God's judgment, why it didn't go on Abraham, the fire of God's judgment rained down upon Jesus Christ. But not for his sins mine, for yours. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Personalize it. You ask people, hey, can you tell me about Jesus? People go, he died on the cross for our sins. You know what? That means nothing until you say, he died on the cross for my sins. It means nothing until you can honestly say to people, if everybody else in the world was perfect, he still would have needed to die on the cross because of my sins. Because I was not holy like God. Jesus is not guilty. He's perfect. But he takes the place of the guilty. Why? Because only Jesus can get us to the other side. We couldn't get ourselves into this world. We can't get ourselves out of this world. Only Jesus can get us to the Father's house. On that day, the covenant curse fell on Jesus. And only by you and me placing our trust in Jesus do we get the benefit of the, co- of the covenant curse that fell upon Jesus. What was it? Well, we saw it last week, verse 6. Abraham believed or trusted God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The great benefit, the great blessing of the new covenant. 
today, do you need assurance from God? Do you know that it's at your disposal every minute of the day by just picturing the cross and seeing how Jesus was cut, how Jesus was torn in pieces for you, and he shed what he called at the Last Supper, the blood of the new covenant. That was the day when God's promise was paid with God's own blood. The Apostle Peter would write these words, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, some versions say futile ways, received by the tradition of your fathers. What does that tell us? That tells us that religion cannot save us. It cannot. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, meaning it was perfect. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for you. You say, okay, I get it. I get it. But can I really, really trust God? If you're taking notes, jot down Romans 8.32. He, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There's the cross. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Friends, because of the cross and resurrection, you can trust God. You can trust him when things are going well but you can even trust him when things are hard. You can even trust him when the future is unknown because he is trustworthy, so trustworthy that he gave his own life for you. Well, let's stand and pray.